The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and this week I want to drag you into my mind, as always. Specifically, I want to give you a sense this time of what it feels like to be a linguist head. I love the questions you all ask me day after day, and I've noticed that with so many of the questions, my sense is, yeah, it's what you expect. And then I try to explain. But the joy of a science, which linguistics at least purports to be, is that we find system amidst the chaos. We want to find a single principle or two or three that explain lots of things that seem separate and random. So what are some of the grand principles that a linguist has in their heads that make us see language the way we do? The kinds of things where I think to myself, yeah, that's what you'd expect. Well, I want you to expect it, too. Because the truth is, these things usually aren't that complicated. It's just that nobody tells you these things. Why don't some of my best friends tell me these things? That was from a 1940 Looney Tune called A Gander at Mother Goose. I wouldn't recommend it, but that was an old joke about Listerine. But you get the point. I'm going to tell you. You're in school. You learn about checks and balances and what an ester is and how cosines work. But on language, all you learn is to not say Billy and me went to the store and that you're supposed to put two spaces after a sentence or something like that. Anyway, that won't do. I'm going to tell you. Here is something that I don't know why these things go in ways, but a lot of you, it's as if you all live in one town. A lot of you over the past month have been asking me about why so many people say tree instead of tree. I'm going to tell you. Think about where you put your tongue when you make a T, so T. Now think about what you do with your tongue when you're doing an R, right? If you go in between the T place and the R place, then what you get is not T, not R, but T. Notice that that's the sound that you're making when you or somebody you know says tree instead of tree. It's perfectly natural. What it is, is a general principle, which is that sounds, when they're near each other, tend to start to be more alike, just like couples who live together for a long time, the way some people end up looking like their pets. Or is it the other way around? But you know what I mean. And so, really, you'd expect it. If you've got a T coming before an R, then a linguist thinks, well, you know, the R is going to end up pulling the T backwards. The anticipation of the R coming is going to make it more like a T than a T. And next thing you know, you have tree. There are terms for these things. When T becomes CH, that's called palatalization. And sounds becoming like one another is called assimilation. But frankly, the jargon is less important than that you know that when sounds are next to each other, they often are going to start becoming more alike. It's like ham and eggs where the eggs taste like the ham juice. And so there's the tree and the tree. Now, many of you are writing to me under the sincere Impression, and I completely understand this, that tree is something new. Few of you have said that you're hearing it in the kids these days. But you know, this is one of those things that because it's so predictable, it goes way, way back. And so, for example, let's try, you know what, this is going to be 1927. And we're going to use a Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart Broadway tune. Not one of their best, I don't think. It's called A Tree in the Park, but you know why I chose it. Listen to this American man singing Tree in the Park in 1927. Meet me underneath our little tree in the park. 
No one else around but you and me in the dark. Just five minutes from your doorstep, I'll wait for your step to come along. And the city's roar becomes a song. While See? 1927, that man is very, very dead. It doesn't sound like he was ever a kid, and yet he's doing tree. Or the old poem, Trees, by Joyce Kilmer. There was a time when as many people in America could recite this poem, or at least pretend to by heart, as today know the lyrics to My Milkshake. My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard, and they're like, it's better than yours, damn right, it's better than yours. Trees. And of course, it was musicalized. And it used to be that, you know, if you were watching Golden Age TV, i.e. all of that garbage that was on TV in the 50s, then every 10 seconds, you notice I'm making it sound like I was there, but every 10 seconds, somebody was walking out in evening clothes and singing trees. So if you look back on these things, you start noticing how they often said it. So first of all, listen to this announcer. This is some dead old white guy. If you see it, he looks dead then. And listen to what he says. Joyce Kilmer's trees. That man was never young. And now listen to Patty Page. She's going to sing the trees song. I think that I shall never see A poem lovely as a tree. How about Mario Lanza? Mario Lanza was a hot pop opera singer. Big deal in the 1940s. And he actually, you know, Joe Penner died of a heart attack in Philadelphia. Mario Lanza was born in Philadelphia and he died of a heart attack, but in Rome. See, you'll only learn these things here. Mario Lanza, here he is on the radio singing in 1952. And he's singing, of course, about trees. But listen to how he says it. I think that I shall never see a poem lovelier. A tree. Uh, uh, uh. So it goes way back. I've certainly heard people saying tree all of my, of course, very brief life. But this means, and remember, we're talking about principles, not just one-offs. That also explains why kids so often, and adults too, say truck instead of truck. There are reports that have come over my transom that there are little people actually writing it truck quite innocently because that's how they say it. Not surprising. Or you're talking about going for a nice drive. Notice how with many people it comes out as drive, drive. Same principle because T and D are really the same sound. Variations on the same thing. D is T with a little bit of belly in it. So if truck often comes out as truck, then derive is naturally going to come out as drive. So just general principles, which explains all sorts of other things, such as did you is that what you really say, or did you say digit? I, I think I usually say digit unless I'm being explicit. And that's because d and y. D is here, y is here, in between is ch. And so digit, digit. Great example the old Dennis the Menace TV show, sitcom, early 60s, beautifully filmed, actually. And of course, little Dennis is a vernacular sort of person. And so he did a lot of digits. And also just these are ordinary American people having colloquial conversations. And so listen to this clip with Jay North as Dennis the Menace and Joseph Kearns as Mr. Wilson. And they're having this little conversation. Here they go. 
And I don't want you to come back, understand? Don't you want me to help you at all? Well, you are helping me, Dennis. You're helping me right this minute. You hear that? Want you, don't you. They're assimilating all over the place. And it has nothing to do with their racial membership because these are some of the whitest people in the world. It's what's going on with the sounds. For those of you who remember this show, one of the cutest things about it was that the live action people looked exactly like the strip. They found exactly the right actors and made them up just right. They really brought a comic strip to life, except for Joseph Kearns. He didn't look like Mr. Wilson. And you know what happened to Joseph Kearns? He was insecure about his weight in his 50s. And so he went on this diet where just for breakfast, lunch and dinner, he would drink this porridge. And he did that for six weeks and it wasn't good for him. And one day he wrapped up a Dennis the Menace and he went home and dropped dead. And for the record, Mario Lanza died of that same thing. He went on too quick a diet, and whoops, there went the heart. In any case, these these morbid, sorry about that. Anyway, these are regular processes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So whenever you're seeing something where one sound is affecting another one, you look beyond that one word or phrase and you find that usually it's going to be something regular. So black English, $5 for $5, $5. Well, where'd the V go? Well, it's gone. You know, the D was coming up and the V was kind of soft and it kind of went away. So $5. Is it only going to be when people talk about dollars in the amount that's in between four and six though? No. If you have V, going away before de, then you can imagine that, for example, if somebody's speaking black English and they're going to say, believe that, you know, black English is that, believe that, well, then if you've got systematicity, then that V is probably going to go too, and it does, believe that. And so I'm going to play you something that's always in my library playing while I make breakfast all the time. And this is by The Game and Lil Wayne. And listen to the title line of this. Lil Game and Lil Wayne are black, by the way. That's the point. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Can you believe it? DJ What I really wanted to do with Tree and Shree is I thought, I'll show them. I'm going to go back to some 19th century pronunciation guide and find that they're warning against people saying Tree. So I went to my favorite one, which is from 1885, and it's called, How Should I Pronounce? And I looked up TR, and naturally the guy doesn't say anything about that. But goodness, the page about TR was just fun in general. And, you know, I've, I've got to share, life is short. So the word tremendous... The way this person says that the cultivated person says tremendous is tremendous. That's how you're supposed to say it. And you're not supposed to say tremendous. I've never heard anybody say that, but that's not the only place where people warn you against saying tremendous. Who who does? But apparently they did. Trio. No, trio. You're supposed to talk about people singing in a trio. Truculent. No, that's only for somebody lying in the gutter, down in the gutter. You're supposed to say truculent, truculent. 
Isn't that interesting? So Edith Wharton people, that's how they would have talked. A truffle is a truffle. You have to say that. Or a vaccine. You're supposed to say it's a vaccine. Vaccine. The icky people are saying vaccine. I'm going to go get a vaccine. And no, that's not. Smack them on the back of the head. You're supposed to get a vaccine. It's very interesting. Right now, I happen to be making my way through Wharton's custom of the country. Don't ask me why, but I enjoy thinking that especially the older people pronounce words in this way. That's just the way it is. It's what we would expect. One of those things is that sounds tend to become alike when they are near each other and often in understandable and sometimes even predictable ways. Tree, tree, bread and butter. Something else. Softeners. A language is full of softeners. And often when you're wondering what a word means or why people are doing something, it's because it's as important when speaking your language, to know how to soften things as it is to use tense or to be able to make something into the plural. So, for example, remember one of the shows I did back in about 1932 with Alexandra Darcy, who is now beginning to be called the like lady. She's a linguist who studies the new like way, way back. Like is one of those softeners. This is like the only way to do it. She was like 107 years old. That's a softener. But like is not alone. It's part of a whole apparatus in English. Any language has this, but in English, a whole apparatus of softening strategies. And if you don't know these, then you're not really speaking the language. And so, for example, head out, which for some reason I never used until about five years ago. Head out. Somebody says at a party, seems to often be a guy and he kind of holds his jaw firm when he says it. I'm going to head out. You know, head out. Well, why not just I'm going to leave? Notice, though, that that's too abrupt. Head out. That little expression is a way of leaving some gathering in a way that doesn't make it seem like you have been waiting to leave. It seems less abrupt. You almost have to say, I'm going to head out unless you back out very carefully and nobody notices. That's a skill to cultivate. But if you can't get away with that, you've got to head out. That's what that is. Or somebody asked me the other day, why do people say, well, I'm going to go ahead and unsubscribe you. I'm going to go ahead and sign you up for this extra bonus. What, what, what go ahead and? You know, are you going forward? Why are you sticking in go ahead and? That's another softener because you're sort of miming as if someone told you to go ahead and do something. So somebody has given you leave to do it. So then you say, well, I'm going to go ahead and implying that the person has told you to do that and therefore softening the fact that you're going to go ahead and basically erase somebody's bank account or you're going to go ahead and <laughs> leave the party or something like that. It's a softener. We're always making things little. So let's have a little breakfast, you can say. But you really could be three eggs and French fries. You know, it's not going to be little. You're not going to have a, a pullet egg and, you know, one quarter of a slice of toast. A little breakfast. Well, why a little? Because it might be perceived as a little abrupt to say, let us eat breakfast. That's, that's no, a little breakfast, even if it's not going to be small. So that's why things are thingies, this thingy. Some people say this little dealio, you know, you're making it cute. You make it into some sort of little 
person. And so, for example, you're dealing with some blocks or a bunch of screwdrivers and you say, I'm going to I'm going to go get these guys and I'm going to put them over here. Well, why are you sexing them? It's because it makes them kind of dear if you refer to it as some sort of guy or oh, let's take this bad boy and put it over here. And that bad boy could be a paper clip. That's something that we do. I find myself thinking also of Vijay and I'll just leave that there or say nice and warm. Have you ever thought about what an odd expression nice and is? This is nice and warm. Do you mean that it's both warm and that it's genial and cordial? <laughs> no. And if it's warm, chances are, especially in that context, it's nice already. Why are you saying that? Nice and warm. It's another one of those softeners. It's where you're basically indicating a concern with the other person's comfort. You're kind of getting inside of them. Something that's nice and short, like the the segments on Amy Schumer. You notice they never go on too long. They're nice and short. That nice and nice and fluffy. Yeah, well, if it's fluffy, it's already nice. You know, chances are if it's fluffy, there was nothing negative about it. Nice and fluffy means I'm concerned that you're going to enjoy the fluff. Notice something else you don't even think of as an expression, usually good and, which is quite different. And you can contrast. So nice and fluffy, that means that it's going to be this pillow and it's going to mm, mm, then good and fluffy. Think about what that implies. I want a pillow that's good and fluffy. That implies that for some reason you're going to be giving that pillow some kind of workout. But in any case, these softeners are very important. If you don't use the softeners, you're not a person. It actually reminds me of a very bad syndicated 80s sitcom called Small Wonder. And it was basically Alf except with a live little girl. And she was a robot and the next door neighbor was suspicious. It was really stupid. There was something about it, though. The actress who played the robot, her name I remember was Tiffany Brissett, was actually very good. And part of the joke was that she had that robotic speech. She didn't use these softeners. And this was the theme song to Small Wonder. She's a small wonder, lovely and bright and soft curves. She's a small wonder, a child unlike other girls. She's a miracle. So, I'm going to go ahead and... Now, of course, go ahead and can also be kind of threatening. The idea being, you know, go ahead and try to knock this battery off my shoulder. That's, boy, that's a dated reference. You know, go ahead and hit me. The idea being that you're inviting the person to do it when actually it's something that the person is going to regret. So that's rhetorically interesting. An example of that to show you how hip I am is with 50 Cent's song here, which actually has a certain title. You know how I knew I was old? I knew I was old at 35. I was being moved. And one of the movers was a guy who was listening to the radio while they were packing up my stuff. And one of the songs was new. And I said, oh, who's this? And this guy turned around and he said, oh, this is a gentleman called 50 Cent. And I thought, Jesus Christ, does he think I'm 117? Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed that cut by Mr. Cent. In any case, these softener things should be taught along with tense and number. They are part of a language. They are what so much of a language is, which otherwise just looks like a whole lot of nice and fluffy stuff. Third thing. Things jump the rails and change their part of speech all the time. 
It's perfectly normal. It is something that's been happening in English for a very, very long time. English is particularly partial to it. The idea that that which is a noun is going to stay a noun and that which is a verb is going to stay a verb, etc. I get it. I don't like the food to touch on my plate either, but it's just not the way any language works. And you know, I'm, I'm human. I'm old, apparently, but I retain my humanity. And that means that I don't like everything. For example, surveil, you know, surveillance is the noun and people run around talking about how they're going to surveil something. That makes my skin crawl every time I hear it. It's quite old. It's been around long, long time, several decades at least. It's actually documented, depending on how you count it, as far back as the, the 19 aughts. So it goes far back, but to me, it always seems like it just started last week. And there's a little bit of me that you, know, you just want to, when somebody says surveil, you want to take a piece of chalk and just like put a mark on their forehead or something. But really, that is how it goes. Same thing with incent. So incentive, this is going to incent them to, this is a normal process because, you know, you've got to be consistent, don't you? I'm putting it that way because I was just in Wales where they always put those little don't use. So you've got to be consistent, don't you? And so if you don't like surveil and you don't like incent, then you don't like divorce. And I think none of us do, but divorce is supposed to be a noun. The idea that you divorced someone, that rubbed some people the wrong way a long time ago. Not because of the content, it was supposed to be a noun. Well, it jumped the fence and here we are. Same thing with dress, drink, stop, train, switch, sleep. Salt was one of those. Also strike, also male, and also fool. Somebody always says fool in that way. Fool starts out as a noun, and then it becomes a verb, and I don't think any of us have a problem with that. There's another example of this that's more interesting, and it's really neat, but we're going to have to go downstairs to share this one. And so, um, good night, kids. Show's over. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at blah, 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 and... Here's that little song in the, in the back that we play at the end of the show for you. Poopa Whoopa John, isn't that cute? It's got fleas in it. Don't let sugar plump fairies bite you or whatever. So, nighty nighty, sleepy. Yeah, I'm going pinch your cheek. Yep. Okay. Are they gone? You know, I'm almost embarrassed that this show requires a warning about profanity at the beginning of each episode. But alas, I do sometimes rail against the world in colorful terms. And Asher Donahue, who has asked me not to curse so much on the show, I hereby promise you that on the next episode, I shall use not a single vulgar word just to see what it's like. Like that novel, what is it, Gadsby, where they don't use any E's. I'm going I'm to try that. But you know what? In this episode, I'm sorry, I need some ass. And what I mean is this. Let's take this sentence. We're talking about things jumping the rails. I'm going to fire his ass. That's a perfectly normal English sentence. You wouldn't hear it on the Today Show, but this is normal. I'm going to fire his ass. Now, think about his ass in this sense. You didn't say, I'm going to fire his ass. You don't mean, I am going to discharge from this position his buttocks and retain the rest of him or something like that. In which case you would say, I'm going to fire his ass. You said, I'm going to fire his ass. Well, that's different. Fire his ass without any accent on it at all. Notice that really it's a way of saying, I'm going to fire him. Except instead of saying him, you say his ass. That's what's going on. And so his ass is a pronoun. So an ass generally, you know, pretty nouny thing, but I'm going to fire his ass. 
That's as having become a nice little pronoun. Thinking of it literally is what allows us to enjoy something like Faulty Towers in this wonderful scene where they have the American who is staying at the hotel. And boy, the Brits weren't as good at doing American accents back in the 70s as they are now. Here's this guy who's supposed to sound like us and he, well, doesn't. But still, he's trying and he's trying to acquaint Basil with the expression, bust his ass. And listen to... (laughs) Faulty's confusion. Man, you gotta tell him, lay it on the line. Lay it on the line. Tell him if he doesn't get on the ball, you're gonna bust his ass. Bust his? I'll tell him. No, 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 I'll tell him. Leave it to me. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. Bust his ass. All that. And uh, two green salads. (laughs) Oh, that. (laughs) And then he comes up with break your bottom. And then this one. Here we are, two green salads. Basil. Mr. Mr. Hamilton has his Waldorf salad, dear. No, dear, chef couldn't make it. He didn't have the ingredients. I just uh, smashed his backside about it. (laughs) See, that's because he doesn't get it, because to him, ass is a noun. But in modern American English, I'm going to fire his ass. It's become a pronoun. Or I'll just go by this one very quickly. Fuck's that. If you're going to talk quickly and a Martian is taking down what you're saying and trying to come up with a grammar of modern colloquial American English, fuck's that. It's short for what the fuck's that. But, you know, if there were no writing and that was passed down the generations, one way of saying What's that? If you wanted to add a little spice to things or if you were really taken aback by something would be that instead of saying, what's that? You say, fuck's that? And that means that fuck has become, among a great many things, a pronoun, just like what is. What replaces nouns? Well, fuck's that. One more. Just one more. I hate that shit. That's another one where the accent kind of gives it away. So I hate that shit. Now, that doesn't mean that I despise that particular feces over there. You would say, I hate that shit. I hate that manure, that. But I hate that shit. Well, really, it's a way of saying I hate that, except there's a way that you feel about the that that makes you give it this fecal coloration. And so I hate that shit. Or somebody used this very articulately on Facebook not long ago. Camille Inge, I don't know if you listen to this podcast, but this is from you. Shit ain't right. Just somebody saying that. Shit ain't right. Once again, nobody is saying that manure is improper. Shit ain't right. And the way that you intone it, really, if you took off the sh, you've got, it ain't right. It ain't right. Shit ain't right. And so shit is a pronoun in its way. Things are just jumping the rails. And so we can combine words jumping the rails or the parts of speech with the whole softening business in noting that there are all sorts of rail jumpings that can happen. Language just doesn't stay tidy. And so the conditional in English has become an imperative, a command in many ways. So for example, could you open the window? What that means is get over there and open the window, except I don't want to be abrupt about it. Can you open the window is one way you could do it. But you're not asking whether the person is capable of doing it. And could you open the window makes it all hypothetical, which softens it even more because you're sitting there hot in the room. There's nothing hypothetical about it. That making it hypothetical and using the conditional, that is where the conditional ends up being a command. 
could you open the window, please? That's a command. And it's not that way in all languages. These things tend to be idiosyncratic. So in Mandarin, if you're in Beijing and you're in a stuffy room and you want to ask somebody to open the window, then jing da ka chuang. That translates as please open window. You wouldn't put it in the conditional. Really, Chinese doesn't offer you a way of doing that precisely. Or if it pleases you, that whole expression becomes please. So give me some peanut butter, please. And you're not even thinking about what it means. And so a verb has become an interjection. These things happen all the time. Now, I'm unaware of any Rogers and Hammerstein song called Shit Ain't Right. But we can have one where can't is a command. And so, for example, Can't You Do a Friend a Favor? This is a late Richard Rogers Lorenz Hart song. This is one of their excellent ones. It's from their last production, A Connecticut Yankee. And, you know, on this morbidity theme, the lyricist Lorenz Hart was a falling down drunk. And for the premiere, he got very, very drunk. And he was standing in the back of the theater, rattling his change and singing along with the singers. Two large men, who I imagine had been hired for the purpose, took him. He was like one foot tall and dumped him out into the street. It was raining. He was found the next day in a coma in a gutter. They took him to the hospital and he lasted about three days. That was 1943. So this is one of his last products. This is a song called Can't You Do a Friend a Favor? This is Vivienne Siegel singing. This is one of the very first cast albums. Can't you do a friend a favor? Anyway, I know most of you don't like that old style voice and the recording quality of that album was kind of dicey. So let's let's go out on something, frankly, that's just better. Now we're in 1991. And so, yes, it's a little synthy. Yeah, this kind of sonics now sounds a little tacky. We can remember what kind of hair we had then, etc. But, you know, this is Stevie Wonder. This is from the Jungle Fever soundtrack. And I get the feeling that the guys in High Fidelity would think of this as sort of the candy cane Stevie Wonder. I disagree. This is actually an album with a lot of great moments on it. And if you like this album, then other than the title song, one you probably like is this one, which is called Gotta Have You. And if you like this one, then actually what you really like about it starts here. Mike, if we could switch into the middle. Here we go with the, the memorable chorus. There it is. Oh, I love this album. Highly recommend it, although I'll bet now it's all out of print. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. This show was edited, as always, by Mike Wolo. Popeyes is better than KFC. And I am John McWhorter. 